0: This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Fleto. A quick programming note. Our September book club is halfway through, but there's still more ways to participate. You can join us in person in New York City or via live stream next Wednesday, September 21st. We're hosting a lively conversation about Vagina Obscura by Rachel E. Gross. Find out more and buy your ticket on our website, sciencefriday.com slash club. That's sciencefriday.com slash book club. And for the rest of this hour, we're going to be talking about antidepressants. About 13% of adults in the U.S. take them every day. And we're going to dig into what we do and don't know about how they affect the brain and how scientists are working to improve pharmaceutical treatments for depression. Let me start off by asking you if you remember this commercial from the early 2000s. There's that little sad blob with a rain cloud following it around.
1: While the cause is unknown, depression may be related to an imbalance of natural chemicals between nerve cells in the brain. Prescription Zoloft works to correct this imbalance.
0: Anti-depression medication was and is still a Madison Avenue staple. Just ask your doctor. That theory of depression as a chemical imbalance is based on a simple premise— Depressed people's brains lacked serotonin. Give them an SSRI or a serotonin reuptake inhibitor like Prozac or Zoloft, and serotonin increases, depression lifts. Trouble is, when researchers started testing this theory, they found it didn't hold up. Serotonin is involved in depression, but it's way more complicated than it originally seemed. To be clear, there is a body of research showing that antidepressants do work. We just don't know exactly how. A few months ago, a study was released which summarized decades of research debunking this oversimplistic chemical imbalance model, which left many researchers in the field yawning. Hey, we already knew this wasn't true. But this study revealed that the public understanding of depression and antidepressants, hasn't kept up with the pace of scientific research. Joining me now to break down what we do and don't know about how antidepressants work and the future of medication treatment for depression is my guest, Dr. David Hellerstein, professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University in New York. Welcome to Science Friday. Ira,
1: thank you for having
0: me. Nice to have you. Okay, let's start off. Can, can you briefly explain how this chemical imbalance theory came to be?
1: You know, I think it was an understandable early way of trying to summarize the effect of antidepressants. And it came out first when the tricyclic antidepressants were introduced in the 1950s and 60s, and they blocked the reuptake of some chemicals, serotonin and norepinephrine particularly. And so a very simple way of thinking of that is, well, if it blocks the reuptake, you must make more of these chemicals available in the brain. And therefore, it's kind of logical to think maybe you just didn't have enough. The gas tank was empty. You're filling it up a bit. End of story.
0: So that theory was a way to explain how antidepressants worked after the fact, right? Not an understanding of brain chemistry that led to antidepressants.
1: Right. And I think when the SSRI medications came out in the late 1980s, it was probably a pretty simple marketing message, and it uh, resonated with people. Remember the book, Listening to Prozac? Wow, it increases your serotonin and gets your depression, your panic, your anxiety better, and so on. Wonderful.
0: And it was a wonderful profit maker for the pharmaceutical companies.
1: I think that's an understatement.
0: Anyone who's taken an antidepressant can tell you that they don't work immediately. What can this lag time help us better understand about how they work? So,
1: right, the the antidepressants increase the serotonin available pretty immediately because they block the reuptake. Yet the effect takes several weeks to appear. So that is the that is the question, why is that? And that's led to a lot of complexity. There's there's there are some immediate effects of the, of the medication, but the benefit takes a while to kick in. And so something happens in the brain that is a delayed process and clearly is much more complicated than just filling the tank with gas.
0: So what are some of the alternative theories as to how antidepressants work?
1: So it's interesting because the article that came out a couple months ago was making a very strong point as though the serotonin deficiency model was still what everybody believes, but it's not. So I think that the reigning theory right now is a chronic stress model and that chronic stress and vulnerability, because some people have more risk for depression or anxiety or PTSD, chronic stress causes changes in the brain that are very difficult to undo, except with some kind of treatment. So the brain becomes um, actually shrunken. The the size of the brain decreases. The number of uh, synapses, connections between brain cells decreases. And the presence or availability of brain growth factors decreases as well. So the brain is, is basically injured in the state of, of depression or anxiety disorders. And therefore, the treatments that we use, to the degree that they're effective, actually have an impact on the brain structure, connectivity, brain health factors, and brain connectivity. So, serotonin reuptake inhibitors and other antidepressants actually do have an impact on this, but it takes a while for that to happen.
0: Mm-hmm. And another theory. What what other theories are there?
1: Well, so there's there's an interesting other theory, which is is sort of a bias theory, cognitive bias theory. So remember, uh, people say, you know, when someone's depressed, they see that the glass is half empty, right? And right. not only half empty, but the glass is cracked, right? So, yeah, you're, you're you everything looks bad, and there seems like there's no way to repair it. So the antidepressants, interestingly, seem to change this cognitive bias in a positive direction. That seems to happen actually pretty quickly. So within the first few days that someone starts an antidepressant, their negative uh, cognitive bias, their pessimism, hopelessness seems to change even before their mood improves. So that's an alternative theory is that the uh, antidepressants change this bias and that that enables the brain to start uh, to recover from
0: depression. Is there any evidence that, that talk therapy also might have the same kind of effect?
1: So, sure, the cognitive behavioral therapy is one of the evidence-based treatments for depression and it actually tackles the negative bias, the sort of pessimism and hopelessness Pretty directly, and that has been shown to work uh, clinically. It helps people, and also to have a positive impact on brain uh, connections and, and uh, activity. So that's kind of the other way to to access this, this these types of system.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, I was surprised to find out that serotonin is not only found in the brain, but is found in other parts of the body, like the like the, like the gut.
1: Right. So the, I don't know if you took an embryology course at some point in in (laughs) high school or college, but if you think back way, way long ago, the fetus grows out of three different layers, ectoderm, endoderm, and mesoderm, and the brain and the gut and a bunch of other tissues, skin, are formed from ectoderm. So there are, there are receptors that are present in many, many tissues. Uh, besides the brain so the serotonin receptors are present in the gut they're present in the skin someone who's embarrassed will have a rash or a a hive sometimes or they'll flush because they have receptors in the skin that are similar to the emotion responsiveness in the brain or or your stomach somebody you know you're you're upset and you're nervous well you feel it in your stomach you know irritable bowel uh classically is is something that comes along with anxiety you know, SSRI, antidepressant medicines, have some benefit for irritable bowel.
0: So this might explain why SSRIs can work for other disorders.
1: Such as pain would be another example, right.
0: Yeah. A lot of folks may be listening to this and saying to themselves, wow, if the scientists don't even fully understand how antidepressants work, maybe I should think about not taking them anymore, just going cold turkey off my antidepressants. That's not a great idea, is it?
1: Um, No, definitely not. And I would say one kind of metaphor to think about is, you know, if you have a strep throat and your doctor prescribes, say, penicillin or ampicillin, you need that to get better from your strep throat. It doesn't mean the strep throat comes from a penicillin deficiency.
0: Hmm, That's interesting. I want to talk a bit about the latest in depression drug research. And a lot of what we're hearing these days is success with psychedelics, psilocybin, ketamines. For example, the FDA recently approved the use of a drug similar to ketamine for depression resistant to other treatments. This is a cutting edge area, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. The, the, One of the frontiers with depression treatment is trying to find rapid treatments that will affect the brain networks, connections, transmitters in a matter of hours or days rather than weeks or months. And so ketamine, a single dose of ketamine can have a major impact on brain chemistry and mood. And we're part of some psilocybin studies here at Columbia. And the first large study was just completed and is about to be reported. And looks like it's pretty successful at having a single dose of psilocybin helping a significant number of people with treatment-resistant depression works within a couple of days the effects last for most people for for three weeks and then up to 12 weeks and so it's really we 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 understand a lot more about depression but the frontier is how do we get rapid onset of of benefit and then how do we keep it because ketamine People get out of the depression, but we haven't really figured out how to keep them non-depressed uh, the best possible way.
0: So it's not resetting something in the brain? Is it, is it doing something to brain circuitry?
1: Yeah, so, so psilocybin, for example, causes massive changes in brain activity. Uh, parts of the brain talk to each other that don't normally talk to each other. You know, people would hear colors, see sounds, talk to God you know, see the beginning and end of the universe, these kind of extreme experiences because their brain circuits are firing off in a pretty intense kind of 4th of July way. And then the days and weeks following the treatment, it looks like there's reorganization of brain networks. So one of the things that seems to happen for a lot of people with depression is kind of a broken record. For those of us who remember record players, uh, you know, you get a, a groove worn into a record which plays the same couple of notes over and over again. And the rapid-acting uh, treatments, it's thought, can pe- get people out of those kind of broken record cycles and help reconnect the brain in new ways. And there's evidence that it, these drugs increase plasticity or the ability of the adult brain to kind of reconnect and, and regrow uh, connections.
0: Did I hear you say, though, that it, it's, it's not a lasting effect?
1: Well, ketamine has a short-acting effect. And then when you get the person out of the depression with ketamine, you have to figure out how to keep them out of the depression. So it doesn't necessarily t- totally go away. It's just that you you give them kind of a, a boost out of the depression, and then they you need to find the best ways to maintain that. With mm-hmm. psilocybin, most of the studies, the first studies were doing two dosings. The current studies are just doing one dosing, and the question is going to be, is that enough for some people? It seems to be. Other people might need two doses, and then how do you maintain the the improvement after that? So it's not a, a slam dunk. Boom, you're better forever. It's more of a jolt. You're out of the state, and then how do you
0: make the most of it? Right. Could you could be put on maintenance doses?
1: And and, and actually yes, and actually the uh, the other thing that's really interesting is how do you best combine that with psychotherapy because. If the brain is now more uh, fluid, its connections are re- restructuring themselves and reconnecting. Maybe that's a time for enhanced learning and for people to find ways to reconnect with their activities, interests, other people, and to kind of break the uh, broken record cycles.
0: This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Dr. David Hellerstein. Professor of Clinical Psychiatry at Columbia University, talking about what we know and don't know about how antidepressants work. When do you think that this newer type, these newer types of drugs might replace SSRIs? You know, millions of people around the world take these drugs every day.
1: Well, the psychedelic drugs are just about to start phase three studies, so it's going to be a couple of years before. They're FDA approved, assuming that that happens. And they're very labor intensive, so it's gonna be hard to scale up uh, lots of treatments for lots of people. And so that's gonna be an ongoing challenge to figure out how to get, uh, if if they're really as good as people think, which has to mm-hmm. be actually proven, uh, then it's gonna be a real process to figure out how to get them out to people. Uh, maybe psychedelic types of drugs, but th- that don't give a trip, that's one alternative that might be actually, um, sounds kind of contradictory or impossible, but the drugs that affect the same receptors that don't give a trip, that might be an alternative that might not be so labor-intensive.
0: Do you think that the pharmaceutical companies are going to push back against this because they're making so much money on these SSRIs?
1: Um, I think the boat of SSRIs has sailed. Actually, the, the big drug companies have disinvested from psychiatric research. I really wish they would get back into the business because we need better drugs and new drugs not just the psychedelics and the ketamines but we need, we need a lot of treatments that are more effective and really the the new wave of psychedelic and ketamine studies is being uh, funded mostly by small small
0: startup companies well they could become big companies could they not i mean
1: uh, they could or they you know it's it's uh, an interesting question. How, I, I'm not a business person, <laughs> but sometimes they get acquired. That
0: kind right. of thing tends to happen. But thi- but this is an optimistic future, from what I'm hearing you say.
1: You know, I I think that you know we've gotten out of the sort of lockbox of the serotonin deficiency model. We think serotonin is involved with depression in a complicated way, but it's not just here's what we do: we fill the gas with with serotonin, and that's the end of the story. We see a complicated system, but one that may have possible places to make an impact that could be um, rapid in onset and could have a significant impact. So I think it's really, we're actually a very exciting period right now.
0: Great to hear that, Dr. Hellerstein. Thank you for taking time to be with us today.
1: Ira, thank you so much for having
0: me. You're welcome. Dr. David Hellerstein, Professor of Clinical Psychiatry at Columbia University in New York.